Welcome to Movie Oubliette, the film review podcast for movies that most people have mercifully forgotten. I'm Dan. And I'm Conrad. And in each episode, we drag a forsaken film out of the Oubliette. Discuss it and judge it to decide whether it should be set free. <laughs> or whether it should be thrown back and consigned to oblivion forever. <laughs> Greetings and happy National Cheese Souffle Day, listeners, and welcome <laughs> to the 77th episode of Movie Oubliette, the intercontinental podcast for forgotten fantastical films with me, Conrad, hoping to go back to the cinema soon in Cambridge, UK. And me, Dan, rapidly running out of surfaces to put all my synths on. <laughs> In Melbourne, <laughs> Australia. That's a good problem to have. <laughs> we focus on sci-fi, fantasy and horror movies because we love mysterious comets, exploring deserted landscapes and beating zombies to the bargains in a shopping mall. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Dan, how are you with, with your towering synth problem? <laughs> well, it's, yeah, no surfaces anymore and plenty of cables everywhere. <laughs> So it's a safety hazard just being in this room. <laughs> well, you'll just have to be like Lamatos and buy a purpose-built enormous studio oh, yes. that you can fill with racks and racks of synths and still socially distance mm. with your bandmate. That, that would be the dream, yes. Mm, yeah, okay. <laughs> and National Souffle Day, really? Yes, it's National Cheese Souffle Day, apparently. Not something I can partake in, obviously, unless there's a vegan cheese souffle. I can't mm. imagine it. It sounds disgusting. Mm, sure, sure. I don't think I've ever even eaten a souffle. No, me neither. I know they're devilishly hard to make without them popping and going flat. But yes. other than that, I'm complete souffle virgin of a feed. Was it a 70s thing? Feels oh, yeah. quite 70s. Yeah. Or was that fondue? I don't know. Oh, yeah, all of those <laughs> I'm things. I'm just totally not up on my cheese law, I'm afraid. Mm. So, yeah. Do write in, people, if you can advise <laughs> us on cheese-related matters. experts out there. Please, educate us. Please do. And Conrad, have they been talking to us in the mailbag and teaching us new things? Of course, yes. Uh, we have a new patron, so a shout out quickly to Matthew Fisher. Ooh. Thanks for uh, supporting the show. Really appreciate having you on board. Mm, welcome. Mm. Uh, yes, we've heard from lots of people. We heard from Krista, a new listener who found us through our episode on Coherence. And ah. she said, one of my favourite movies. And now I have your theme tune happily stuck in my head. <laughs> <laughs> That's the goal. <laughs> yes, indeed. Earworms. She says, it's so nice to hear you mention how early the jumps start in the film too. So many people seem to miss the importance of the Roswell comments. Ah, so yes, yes. Jake Armistead on Maniac Cop said... It's ridiculous how many really good horror films Tom Atkins was in during the 80s, seemingly more so than any other actor I can think of. <laughs> mm, we did mention them, right? Yeah, a lot. Yeah, we did, yeah. Loads of them. I haven't seen all of them, so maybe <laughs> we could try to collect them all. Mm. We also heard from Lorene Landon, 
who said, I starred in this movie too. (laughs) (laughs) She did. That's amazing. She did. And she was great in it. I think she was feeling a bit left out because we did a social that was focusing on Bruce. So we've done a social now that focuses just on Lorene and how fantastic she is in the movie as mm. Teresa. So yes. hopefully she will feel less overlooked. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, we heard from good old Serge oh, of Cold oh. Crash Pictures. Hey, Serge. Hey, Serge. Who said, Maniac Cop is pure schlock, but it's good schlock decent production values, several subverted expectations, and a somewhat prescient pervasive distrust of cops. There's a scene where a detective builds a psych profile for the killer and someone points out that even he's a match. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) I love it when Movie Oubliette does Coin of Fate episodes. I feel like it gets at the heart of reviewing schlocky cult cinema. Even if the movie's good at what it does, your mileage with that sort of thing may vary. Mm, yes, yes. Mm. I do see a pattern, though, that the really schlocky, sort of <laughs> so bad it's good movies tend to be down my alley. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you're more about the nostalgic childhood kids' uh, adventure movies from the 80s. Yeah. I know, I get all starry-eyed and I just can't see the faults and you're sat there saying, what? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. What is this? (laughs) Yeah. No, it's good fun. It balances out. Mm. Sometimes it is really just down to a coin toss. Yeah. One final thing I would like to mention is that Serge also commented when I posted that both of the Ewok TV movies are now on Disney+. Plus. I posted this on uh, May the 4th. May the 4th be with you. Mm. And uh, Serge, puzzlingly, initially posted, finally going to confirm whether or not Wilford Brimley fucks. (laughs) (laughs) Which... Really? (laughs) (laughs) Baffling. (laughs) Different movie from the one we saw. (laughs) Definitely. (laughs) But then he corrected himself and said, says fuck. So... (laughs) Phew. Oh <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it's it's uh it's debatable what he actually says. Right. Okay. Well, Serge, and also who knows what us. Disney Plus has done to it. <laughs> oh, that's true. That's true. So uh what what are we going to be talking about today, Conrad? Any expletives in this movie? Well, it's always a journey of discovery. Let's find out over mm. here. Uh, 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 I seem to be in some sort of surgical room. Okay. Underground, there are no windows in here. Oh, and there's a body. Oh, oh, looks like it's being drained of blood. Oh, that sounds gross. Yeah. Oh, it's clutching a film. Hang on, I'll grab that. Coming back. <laughs> oh, Daddy would have gotten us Uzis. Did you get it all right? I did. Yes. And our film today is Night of the Comet a 1984 American science fiction comedy horror film written and directed by Tom Eberhardt, Eberhardt, starring previous guests Catherine Mary Stewart and Kelly Maroney, as well as Robert Beltran, Sharon Farrell, Mary Warrenov and Jeffrey Lewis. Ah, yes. I have to admit... I had not seen this movie before we had Catherine Mary Stewart on, so... Yes. (laughs) I had to smile and nod, I think, in that that episode quite a bit. (laughs) 
No, that's fair enough. We do have a bonus episode for patrons that has both Kelly and Catherine talking about their memories of Night of the Comet and Mm -hmm. funny things like what happened to their costumes and stuff. So it's really good if you want to have a listen. Yes, check it out. So in this movie, Californians eagerly await two things, Christmas and the flyby of a comet that hasn't been seen in our solar system since the dinosaurs went extinct. Oh, wow. Strange, that. That's a long time. (laughs) (laughs) Mm. That's quite some big orbit. Our two heroines, Valley Girl siblings Regina and Sam, wake up after coincidentally both sleeping in steel-walled structures to discover that everyone else has either been reduced to a pile of red dust and stylish 80s clothes or turned into flesh-eating zombies. All that's left is a friendly truck driver called Hector and a bunch of bunker-dwelling scientists whose interests in the Belmont sisters may be less than benevolent. Will they escape being harvested for blood serum or eaten alive? Will they find a reliable automatic weapon? And can they find an outfit to match? Find out after the break. (laughs) All the woes of the apocalypse. Indeed. In the 80s. (laughs) (laughs) And we'll be joined by a special guest for this episode. So, yeah, can't wait to explore this one at last. Yeah. We are very excited today to be joined by the other co-founder of Retro Blasting. We're collectors at heart and love completing sets. She's the co-host of Every Generation X's favourite podcast, the wildly entertaining and exquisitely researched Dreamland. Please welcome Melinda Mock. Hey! hey. Hi. <laughs> welcome. Thank you for having me, guys. I'm very excited to be here. Well, it's really great to talk to you. How are you doing in uh, in these strange times? Uh, I'm doing quite well. Uh, luckily for me, I already work from home. Oh, so I'm, bonus. I've just settled in and I'm doing all sorts of different research on all sorts of different things. And as you know, I love doing that. So I was happy <laughs> to divert to our movie for tonight and uh, spend some time with it. It's been really fun. Yeah. So the film that you've chosen for us to talk about today, Night of the Comet, um, is kind of interesting in the context of the experience we've been going through. I was wondering if you could kick us off by talking about why you chose it when you first saw it and what it means to you. Sure. So I saw this movie probably in around 1988. Eight. Mm. I was living in Alaska on a military base. My dad is Army. Wow. I saw it at a slumber party at a friend's house there on base, and I immediately fell in love with Catherine Mary Stewart's character because I felt like she was very much like me, although I was only like 11 or 12 at the time. But I had the hair. I'll send you a picture. I had the hair. <laughs> I had the same color eyes. You know, I was in love with her wardrobe. I even, in Alaska at that time, everyone talked like ballet girls, way more than these girls do in this movie. And (laughs) being an army brat like this character, Mm. I sort of have maybe a slightly different perspective, at least from what I can tell. And I can't wait to talk about that with you guys. But I love that both of the sisters were very independent and kind of tomboyish and not afraid of stuff. And that really resonated with me as an army brat. And weirdly, today is Military Brat Day, oh. uh, sort of a, an annual observation of 
all of us who served without wanting to serve. (laughs) 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 And I think that that really plays into this movie a lot. At least that's my take on it. Maybe I'm a little biased. So, But I did love this movie, and uh, I hadn't seen it. I kind of weirdly forgot about it. And and sort of thinking of a movie that would be sci-fi and horror, it just snapped into my brain, and I looked it up, and I was like, I've got to rewatch this movie. So it's been really fun. Yeah, that's great. It is one that people forget. And I saw it on TV in the 80s, but hadn't revisited it since. Dan, had you seen it before? No, no. So I, I have to thank you, Conrad, for introducing me to this movie. Never heard of it. Only watched it before we had Kelly on because I thought, well, I should probably watch a movie that she's in (laughs) before she's on the podcast (laughs) and hadn't watched it until recently for this episode. So, yeah, it was strange because I watched this before 2020 Mm. and then watching it now, it's got a different tone. Like you really relate to it a lot more now. Yes. It's classed as an empty city movie, very much in the tradition of some of the 50s science fiction thrillers like Target Earth, Day of the Triffids, something like that. Mm -hmm. The shots of the Belmont sisters walking out post-comet visitation to discover that the world is no longer particularly well inhabited apart from piles of clothes and brick dust Mm. is eerily resonant. It's funny because... I thought I was coping really well with lockdown last year when it kicked off and somebody in Cambridge did one of these drone videos where they flew a drone around the centre of the city Mm. and it was empty and it is usually so full of life with students and tourists. I sort of broke down watching it. That's the part of the film, the aspect of the film that stuck with me is the visuals of the red filtered skies and the empty city and these two sisters, one of them in a cheerleader costume, (laughs) walking through this landscape. Yeah, I feel the same way. I thought I was doing really well because I'm fairly introverted myself and I don't tend to go out all that much anyway. But after about four or five months, and then like you said, you would see that there's no one outside and you haven't gone outside and you can't see people, you kind of start getting that the shining Mm. starts (laughs) getting off, (laughs) you know, like you start to feel like you're having cabin fever a little bit, so. Yeah. Yeah. Dan, you haven't had lockdown quite as much. Yeah, not so much. (laughs) Uh, I mean, it was, yeah, definitely a few months last year where, yeah, everyone was at home. But I I was actually still going to work and it was just so peaceful. Like (laughs) I would catch a train and there would be no one on the train and I'd walk through the city and there was no one in the city and I'd get to work and there would be two people at work. Yeah. <laughs> it was quite relaxing, but yeah, it was a strange time. And this movie really kind of encapsulates that strangeness. I, I don't know how they filmed it as well, because it's, it's filmed in LA, right? Mm-hmm. How's that possible? It's a low budget film. Yeah, very small budget, 700000 I think. But oddly enough, when I listen to the commentaries, the filmmakers seem to suggest that it wasn't that difficult to find LA downtown empty if you filmed on a Sunday. Yes. Really? Wow. Just Sunday. (laughs) Just Sunday. I like the end of the world. (laughs) Yeah, not the end of the world, just Sunday. And I think for the scene where there's a car in the middle of the street, which I believe is the director's car. (laughs) Oh, wow. That's right. The Mercedes is his, and it's his license plate actually. Oh, wow. <laughs> didn't even oh, no. have the production designer change that out. And the production designer says, oh, well, if he had told me, I would have totally changed that out. Oh, <laughs> oh, <no. right. laughs> 
would have been wise, probably. Mm -hmm. But yeah, for that scene, apparently all they needed to do was hold traffic for 45 seconds. Oh, okay. And got the shots and then got out of the way. And yeah, I mean, they did film at Christmas time as well, oh. which is why the film is kind of a Christmas movie. And the only reason for it is because they knew there would be Christmas decorations around and they knew they couldn't afford to redress all of the shops and all the streets. So oh, wow. they just said, okay, it's a Christmas movie. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing seeing uh, sort of the troubleshooting of low budget filmmaking. Yeah. But it doesn't look like a low budget movie. It doesn't to me. Yeah. I think the overall atmosphere and the red filter really helps. But I think some of the effects, I don't know. Yeah. It's a little bit low budget to me. <laughs> For sure. There are certain moments that are pretty like you said, low budget. But then there are other things like the makeup uh, effects on the zombies are pretty good. Like, it's very respectable. Of course, it's David Miller, right? And yeah. he worked on Nightmare on Elm Street and uh, has done a lot of other really great effects stuff too. So, you know, it seems like this movie did a great job of utilizing the budget that they had very, very well mm. and getting really good people who were very good at what they did and so they could almost work with a skeleton crew. Mm. Mm. I did have a small issue with a movie about zombies not having a lot of zombies. Like there were like five minutes of zombie time, I guess, <laughs> in the entire film. I felt the same way. And then when I listened to, again, the commentary, and I can't remember which person it was. I think it was the director, Tom Eberhardt. He talked about how basically he threw the zombies in towards the end. It was never intended to be oh. about zombies or <laughs> a right. horror movie at all. It was supposed to be sort of a tongue-in-cheek script about the last person on earth or the last people on earth kind of thing empty city type right. of movie and then he threw those in because he knew it was going to be airing at drive-ins with things like terminator so i think he threw them in for that crowd right right the midnight yeah. crew that makes sense because you could actually take all the zombie scenes out and it wouldn't affect the film, really, because there's a lot of dream sequences and sort of standalone zombie attacks that don't even need to be in the film. Agreed. That is true, yeah. So how many zombies actually are there? The traffic cops are a dream. Yes. There's the guy in the alley, and then there are all the stock boys. Ah, yes. And I guess you could technically count the scientists as well. Yeah. Yes. And there was <laughs> that scene where um, Hector goes to try and visit his family. Oh, right. The little boy. That, that kid. Yes. <laughs> but it's, it's almost like that whole scene is almost like you could easily cut that out and it wouldn't affect the film. There are a lot of scenes like that, weirdly, actually. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. I think it adds some emotional weight and development to Hector's character. It does. That's true. That's true. Robert Beltran, who is top build in this movie, which I don't think is right. Because oh. <laughs> he is he's not really in it. not the main character. No, he's very supporting. But I guess we all know why. <laughs> I guess also, to be fair, he had just been in Eating Raul and I think he was more well-known, perhaps, than the rest of the cast at that mm. point in, in his career. Yeah, and he became much more well-known, I guess. Yes, mm. Chakotay. Not to me, but maybe to other people. <laughs> Chakotay. <laughs> 
he um he talked about how the producers were desperate to get him into the film and they kept promising him so many different things like they initially envisioned his character being much more stereotypical latino and robert beltran was just like no i don't want to play that character and so finally they said okay well you can play him however you want to just be in the movie he was like okay and they said and we'll give you top billing so they were basically using it as a bargaining chip and that's really why i believe at least according to robert beltran that's why yeah okay I did like that the main characters in this movie are two women and a Latino. Yeah. And not, yeah, like you said, not a stereotype, cliche, ridiculous Latino as well. So it was really refreshing. Agreed. Yeah, it's two valley girls and a blue-collar worker at the end of the world. And the thing that I particularly like about it is that it's not looking down on any of these characters. You could easily see a version of this movie where the Valley Girls are just the butt of every joke. Mm. But even the moment where, what are the girls going to do the first time they find out the world is empty? They'll go shopping. (laughs) But it's not treated as a joke. You're actually along for the ride with them. And there's a very good reason why Reggie coaxes Sam to go shopping at that point because she is actually really depressed. Like the reality of their situation has just hit her in a very emotional scene. Mm. Yes. That they threatened to cut out of the movie at one point until they did a test screening and suddenly realised that all the young women in the audience were, it was really resonating with them. So they left it in. But yeah, so even sort of the most stereotypical Valley Girl scene, you know, they're not treated as dumb or the butt of a joke, which I think is really important. Mm. I agree. I think that the characters you could, certainly with Reggie's character, you could make her character a man Mm. and it wouldn't fundamentally change the plot or the movie. And Mm. in fact towards the beginning, they sort of subvert that horror movie trope of, uh, you know, she sleeps with her boyfriend or the guy she's sort of casually seeing in the film projection booth. And not only does she not get killed afterward for doing so, Mm. she doesn't make a big deal out of like being super hung up on him. She seems very casual about it. And he actually is the one that gets killed, which (laughs) is kind of refreshing in a way. Um, But they also like there's no penalty for her character for having had sex, uh, which is so common in horror movies. Um, Not that this Mm. really is a straight horror movie, but I really loved that. And I loved that she was sort of portrayed as really loving video games, uh, which is normally like that same actress is in The Last Starfighter. It's, of course, the male lead who is super into the video game thing. And so it's kind of cool to see a female character not making a point of like, I'm a girl and I don't need your help, men. But it's just sort of like that's who she is and she's just very comfortable with herself, which is awesome to see. Exactly. I I think that's the key point. Like have a strong female character, but don't state it. You know, don't make it so obvious that I'm strong and female and I don't need a man. Just just show it. You know, we don't need to hear people spelling it out to us. Yes. And don't turn them into a man either. Right. Yes. I mean, the elephant in the room about this movie is that it really heavily inspired Buffy the Vampire Slayer mm-hmm. and Joss Whedon. And even the dog's name is Buffy. Yes. And there's the girl in the cheerleader outfit and all I of these things. That. 
And Joss Whedon has been very open about that. I hadn't made that connection. Mm. But yes, she's a great example of a strong female and yet still feminine character. Although it's nice to have Reggie display some characteristics that are typically associated with men in movies, such as her competitiveness over the high scores on that Tempest video game? Yeah, what is that game? <laughs> I don't know. Oh, you guys aren't familiar with Tempest? No. I, I guess I'm from a, a bit of a younger generation, but it just looks That's like true. lines and coloured dots on a screen. I don't even know what's going on. <laughs> oh, Dan, welcome to the 80s. <laughs> right, right, right. Like, you really had to use your imagination to really sort of immerse yourself in this, like, Game, I guess. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Inverted commas. Yeah, it was a weird game. It wasn't my favorite, but I definitely saw it in the arcades back in the day. So mm, yeah, right. Sorry, Conrad, continue. <laughs> no, I was just going to say that it's just so great to see her so desperate to fill the high school table with her initials mm. and being outraged that some other person has injected themselves in their DMK. And this was set up as a tease at the beginning of the film, like four minutes in, and it's not resolved until I think the penultimate shot. Yeah. Right. And was never actually going to be resolved. Oh, right. really? Yeah. Because I did think it was a strange punchline. It's like, what? It wasn't supposed to be. And I think the director and writer, his only purpose in having that in there was to show her competitiveness. Yeah. Which, side note, is very funny because if a person were to slide into sixth place, then whoever was in sixth place would just bump down to seventh place. They don't just go away. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, like I think the director's <laughs> wife and several other people kept saying, hey, who is DMK? And so he finally was just like, he realized at the end that he needed to come up with a male character for Sam's character to get with. Oh, yes. right. uh, so that she wasn't left all alone. And so he sort of just said, well, this will be DMK. And it'll be like, I did that on purpose. Ha ha. And that's very Joss Whedon too, where it's like, ah, oh, I've been setting this up for two years. But <laughs> I don't know if I really believe that, Joss. But okay, we'll, we'll go with it. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> because of course, Sam wasn't supposed to be there at the end of the movie right. either. That's right. Was well, she supposed to die in that scene? Yes. yes. That devastating scene. Wow. Yeah. So the scene where the scientists finally catch up with them and they separate the sisters and you know that this isn't going to go well, that something's wrong because there's a suspended note on the score mm -hmm. and the helicopter's pulling away and you're looking down and you're thinking, oh, this is bad, this is bad. But yes, that was supposed to be Sam's final scene. She oh, was wow. supposed to die and vanish from the movie. I just cannot see that working. No. How bittersweet would that have been? Mm. I don't know. That's kind of heartbreaking. And this movie, I do not think this movie is funny. I'm going to go on record and say, I know everyone talks about it being funny. And I, I'd love to know, Dan, if you think it was funny, especially having not seen it until more recently. But I don't think it's funny. But I certainly don't think its tone would support her dying there. Yeah. What do you think? When I first watched it, obviously, I, I didn't know that she was going to not die. I was heartbroken in that scene because she's such an amazing beloved character and when she came back I was like oh phew okay at least <laughs> it's one of those movies where no one dies um, <laughs> but I did find this movie funny actually there's like a lot of great one-liners and they're all said by the two girls mm -hmm. but yeah I think what holds this movie together there's a lot of flaws 
But the two girls really hold this film together and really connect you as an audience um, to the end. Yeah, I think you're right. I think the two female characters bring the audience along because they're just so lovable and you just enjoy seeing them. In fact, for me, I wanted to see them navigating this empty landscape. And I was kind of disappointed when it went into the whole scientists in the underground bunker me too. segment at yeah. the end. Yeah. And it's interesting to see the film 28 Days Later I think it's heavily influenced by this movie. And to see it make the same narrative mistake and end up with the military guys starting their own civilization mm. and being horribly misguided and exploitative, I feel it's kind of sad that they made the same mistake and weren't able to improve upon this movie. But I don't know. What did you think about that development, Melinda? Did you Were you along for the ride the whole time? No, I, I love this movie. I'll start out by saying that. And I don't hate the third act, but I also don't love the third act. Mm. I sort of equate this movie as going from Night of the Living Dead to Dawn of the Dead to Day of the Dead all in one movie. Right. Oh, yeah, that's wow. true. Yeah, the military aspect, yeah. yeah. Because the scientists become the military slash scientists that are in Day of the Dead. And I really like Day of the Dead, but it's a very different kind of movie. So going from two films like Night of the Living Dead and then Dawn of the Dead it's like a completely different genre. And mm. so that is what that third act feels like. You feel like it's gone into this weird, why are we in this bunker now? And who are these people? Their characters aren't nearly as defined as the girls and Robert Beltran even. Yeah. And so what I do think is interesting about that is that you have the two girls and Hector are both quintessentially good, mm. morally aligned characters, whereas the scientists who are normally portrayed as very righteous dudes, mm -hmm. <laughs> they're the good guys in a lot of movies. The scientists who are also, for the most part, your standard white guy, which I don't think that was the intent behind this movie at the time, but I just think it's an interesting read now. Mm. They're the bad guys because they are amoral. They don't care. They're willing to sacrifice children, for example, mm. whereas Hector and Reggie and Sam are willing to risk their lives to help save each other and to save these kids that they don't even know. Yeah. And so I feel like those are your two opposing forces in the movie. But it's just like we don't know anything about the agenda other than I guess those scientists just want to survive. Mm. That's not a very compelling bad guy, I guess, if they're going to be mm. the bad guy. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree with that. And also, yeah, they didn't spend the time to develop the characters of the scientists as well. They seem to hone in on that female scientist and then she kills herself so it's like what oh okay who are we latching on to now and the big villain i just don't even know who he is like he's barely in the film so you, you don't really feel anything when they escape he doesn't seem to be as bad as he's supposed to be like i, I actually felt that the shopping mall bad guy mm. was more menacing and evil and sort of anarchic in how he portrayed himself mm -hmm. But yeah, the scientists in particular as well just didn't seem like real scientists to me. Especially in the sort of the grey jumpsuit with the really fashionable white belts that they had. Like, <laughs> their logo was on everything. Oh, everything. Yes. Yeah. And it's very reminiscent of the one that's in Lost a few years later, oh. quite a few years later. Oh, right. really? Yeah. It's the underground bunkers, the organisation that's behind all of the mysteries in Lost have like a maze logo as well. So oh, okay. maybe they were influenced by this movie too although they were also unable to come up with a satisfying ending mm. <laughs> <laughs>
true. No spoilers. <laughs> Both of them are really great in this movie, Catherine Mary Stewart. It's a slightly different role for her because I'm so used to her from The Last Starfighter playing the girl next door or the girl from the trailer next door, really, in, in that movie. But I'm so used to her playing those sorts of roles. To see her playing something this hard edged was really quite refreshing. And for Kelly playing, obviously she'd been playing the bad girl, for her to play somebody who's still got a razor sharp tongue on her, but has a heart of gold, really. It's kind of fun seeing both of them playing these roles and playing them so well. It ended with the two of them forging a lifelong friendship because they're still talking to each other on a daily basis to this day. Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah, I really love both of those characters. I love the way that they, even though one is a cheerleader and one's more of a tomboy, they're both able to take care of themselves and that goes back to kind of what I was saying before about being a military brat because you really you have to prepare yourself for losing a parent all the time Mm. Uh, frequently they spend long periods of time away from you so you're already used to existing in a world where you're taking care of yourself right and so that's why I think they're so unflapped or nonplussed I guess is the better word when all of this happens because They've already been taking care of themselves. Certainly their stepmother, Doris, is not a very maternal, kind person who's nurturing and, (laughs) you know, taking care of them. So they're just out there doing their thing. And so now they don't have all of the stuff on top of them that's preventing them from doing what they want. It's almost like I remember that when I saw this movie before, just when I was a kid thinking – how awesome would that be? Like if all of the adults were just gone and then I could just be myself and do what I want, you know, yeah. <laughs> even if it's killing zombies, like I feel like I could do it, you know? Mm. Yeah. I love how personally this resonates with you. Mm. I had an inkling that it would because I've heard you mention before that you were a military kid and that resonates with me because my dad was army too. So I understand the feeling of having to be resilient because every couple of years your whole life has to move somewhere else and you have to to start all over. This has an additional element to it, though, with them being girls, in that it's clear that the dad, well, it's not absolutely clear, but I think it's strongly intimated that the dad wanted sons and has treated his daughters as though they were sons, mm. getting them used to firearms, making sure that they can take care of themselves. And my dad did all of that as well. And so I really? think that's another reason. Like, he really wanted a son and mm. he really wanted me to be more of a tomboy, although I was kind kind of a tomboy, but I guess not enough of a an oozy-toting mama at, at age 12, you know. But he did teach me self-defense. He taught me from an early age how to use a gun. He wasn't going to, like, step in. If kids were bullying me at school, it was, you need to learn how to fight your own battles, you know. So it's a lot of that military mindset. Mm. I don't know if the director even intended that at all, but that is how it resonates with me. It's like, that's what it's like to be a military kid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it comes from a very true place, doesn't it? Whereas Buffy, as the cheerleader who can kill vampires, seems much more like a male fantasy figure that's constructed and not really paying off something that's genuine. Mm. Right. Sure. I would have loved it if Buffy had been a military kid. I would have bought that a lot more, although I personally do love Buffy and mm. also identify a lot with her character, but in a very different way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, the two girls are badass. They can hold their own. They beat up guys. 
there's one scene, though, yeah. and this gets me every time in movies, and I hate it so much. It's right at the climax where they're getting attacked by a zombie just out of the blue. Hector gets attacked, and <sighs> Catherine Mary Stewart's character throws him a gun. Just... Let her use the gun. <laughs> I hate that in movies. Oh, that's a good point. Where the female character is there just to throw the weapon to the male character to use. <laughs> You're right. And it really doesn't fit with her character, does it? It doesn't. It doesn't. No. no. Yeah, if you're within throwing distance, you're within shooting distance. Exactly. Yeah. So. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> What's I mean... faster, throwing a gun to use or just using the gun? That's yeah. a really good point. <laughs> the one aspect that I think is a bit of a letdown, I've read in reviews how carefully handled the transition between irresponsible valley girls to taking on the full weight of the responsibility of rebuilding society and becoming middle-class conservatives. But I don't see the gradual transition myself. It seems like they are the characters they are until the final scene when all of a sudden Catherine Mary Stewart becomes this middle-class mom mm. who's telling Kelly off all the time. And it's not ironic. You know, if they were playing a role and making fun of it, then it would be one thing. But it feels like she's genuinely changed. Yeah. And I find that a bit of a disappointing end for Reggie. Yeah, it's an odd end. And, and also when Kelly exclaims as well, they look like the Brady Bunch. It's like, yeah, mm. where did this come from? <laughs> it's my least favorite part of the film. Yeah. I have a thing about movies, like you just said, you hate it when this happens in, in movies. This is my least favorite thing, where any strong female character has to be made into a mom. It even happens to Ripley in Alien right. and then Aliens. Yeah. And in that case, it's in a roundabout way, but nonetheless, so is this. It's fairly roundabout. But she's now got to conform because she's a mom and she has to then therefore have these feelings and do these things and play this role. I feel like if anything about the film is not pro-female, it's that. Mm. And I'm not saying yeah. that being a mom is bad. I'm just saying – these kids could be kind of just part of the gang or part of the Scooby gang or whatever you want to call it. Like they, <laughs> yeah. instead of having to be like, oh, well now we have to wear a suit and tie and we have to populate the earth and we have to do all of this stuff. And that means conforming to these weird societal norms that we have to carry forward into this new society we're going to build. It's like, why? You get to set the rules yourself. Mm. <laughs> and I would have been excited to see what they did with it. Mm. Agree. But all of a sudden she's a mom with kids. And a guy in a tux. Yeah. And also Danny Mason Keener shows up as well to be yes. you know, of course. the prize for Sam. <laughs> yeah. So she can ride off into the sunset. In a sports car. Yeah. <laughs> in a bikini or in a swimsuit anyway. Yeah. Mm. I just want Catherine Mary Stewart to wake up in a cold sweat for it to be a horrible nightmare that she's it's, having. It's yet another dual layered nightmare. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Like stripping in a bathroom for no reason. Mm. I don't know what's going on in that scene. <laughs> I don't know. I, mean, I felt wrong watching it. It's like, should I yeah. be watching this? How old is Kelly right now? I, I mean, yeah. I'm pretty sure the actress was of age, but she's playing a character who is not, so it makes it feel kind of creepy. Yeah, sure. it does. It's a very strange ending, and it's kind of one of those movies where you love the characters, and I enjoy spending time with them, but in terms of like an arc or a plot or a development of what they're doing or any of those things, mm. I, I struggle to sort of figure out, like it wasn't like they were trying to solve what happened mm. in terms of how people became dust. They weren't trying to like in um, 
say, for example, Day of the Dead, their goal at the end of that film is to escape to this island, which they do. It's thin, mm. but it's at least a goal. Sure. There wasn't really that. They just kind of stayed physically where they were and sort of as people where they were. So that's my other thing that I struggle with with this film, but I still love it. I just wish that they could have done more in that third act to take us somewhere different. Yeah. yeah. That's one thing I had a problem with this movie. The pacing's a bit odd. Yes. There are so many things about this movie, and the pacing is one of them that reminds me of the movie They Live. Right. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah. Some of it is the long uh, city shots to establish what things look like, Uh which I think works really well, but it just sort of adds to that, like, very roomy, like, let's just settle in for an empty city, Mm. (laughs) which I love, but... I see what you're saying. Like, it does feel very slow. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's just a different era of filmmaking, partly. Yeah. Yeah, that could be true. I didn't mind the establishing shots of the city. I thought that's what sort of gave the atmosphere of the film. It was just some of the dialogue scenes. As much as I loved all the dialogue... Some of it just seemed very slow and clunky. Like, Mm. it almost felt like, what's the point of this? Let's kind of move it forward, I guess. I think normally in a film you're used to seeing that economy. You know, this scene has is only here because it's going to pay off later or it's informing this character or whatever. And, I mean, in some cases it is building these characters because that's why we love them is because we kind of have gotten to know them. That's true. However, I, I see what you're saying because it's like there's a lot of it. And so it seems like some of it could have gone and maybe we could have had a little bit more plot put in. Yeah. Mm. Or action. Yeah. Action. Yeah. Yeah. I I do agree as well with this film. It is a bit directionless. They don't really have a thing they're attaining or a place that they're going. They're just surviving. But I mean, is that the theme of the movie? Just surviving? I mean, they're doing it with style. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Now it's time for Random Trivia. So it's trivia time and usually it's Dan, but we thought Mm. we would hand this over to our guest, Melinda, who I I think is famous for her excellent research. So Melinda, (laughs) what fascinating nuggets of trivia have you uncovered from a pile of brick dust for us today? Well, uh, (laughs) I, I actually watched all of the movie commentaries that come with the Blu-ray release of this disc. And I sort of had them on in the background while I was doing other things, but they're very interesting. And I highly recommend all of them. But one of them that, that stuck out to me was, so at the beginning of the movie, there's the voiceover that's very like 50s, 60s sci-fi movie. Movie that's mm-hmm. like talking about, you know, the comet was this Christmas present that the people of Earth weren't expecting this year, you know, very, <laughs> very kind of cheesy on purpose. And apparently Vincent Price was supposed to be the person to oh. to read that. Oh, wow. But he was uh, in his later days, and so he wasn't well enough to do that recording. Oh. But that would have been a really great addition, I think, especially for the drive-in B-movie that this is. Yeah. Also, yeah. The, the other little fun note that I thought was interesting was in Hector's mother's house when he goes there to sort of check on her and see if she's still alive live or whatever, all of the photos that are in the house are all the director's wife's family members. Oh, uh, wow. So <laughs> his mother, the person you assume is Hector's mom is his mother-in-law. And the girl who I guess is Hector's girlfriend 
uh, and he's picking up her photo to put it in the sack, is apparently his wife's niece or something like that or cousin. Oh, wow. And, and people literally, he said, when he would go to see the movie in L.A., they were like, that's Mary or whatever her name is. <laughs> so, I think that's pretty funny. He was like, yeah, I learned my lesson to not use family photos in movies anymore. <laughs> Wow. Yeah, yeah. Or, or your own car with yeah. with your registration <laughs> number. Correct. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Just, just put your social security number on the Hudsnick's phone. Bin. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Address. <laughs> okay, and that's our trivia. Yes. The film does have a very distinct visual style. Kudos should go to Arthur Albert for the cinematography because it may be a very simple solution, putting a gradiated red filter over those city scenes, but mm -hmm. it's something I always remember. Like My memory of this movie from watching it as a kid was of those red skies and mm. that strange landscape that they created with it. And it's such a simple effect, but it's so effective. It is. I agree. Yeah, it completely transforms yeah. the look of the film. And it just makes it believable as well mm. that it's the end of the world, you know, the red skies. Yeah. I kept um, thinking about all the different movies who have really strongly used colour in that way, like especially red is the most obvious color you know you've mm. got things like the sixth sense and american beauty and even schindler's list where it always is sort of like this warning mm. i think red sky at morning sailor's warning you know and, <laughs> and i kept seeing that like when the sun's rising and there's just red everywhere you're like yeah. you know this is ominous because you don't actually again you don't see the people turn to dust you just see like 40 pounds of brick dust laying on top of people's clothes in the middle of a <laughs> cul-de-sac so yeah <laughs> <laughs> Which, by the way, that is funny. I will give you that. That is kind of funny just because of the way the clothes are laid out so perfectly as though they fell horizontally. Yeah. <laughs> Did you guys see the fake nails laying on top of the bed of red dust? Oh, no, I didn't. <laughs> oh, no. oh, it's just that's funny to me. Like, I literally laughed out loud. Details, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I did like uh, Catherine Mary Stewart holding up one of Chuck's shoes and tipping out the red dust and saying, you know, this is Chuck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I noticed this when Catherine Mary Stewart walks in to the house. She walks right in and then up the stairs to go find her sister. And there's nothing there in terms of dust. But when they come down... There is dust and there's like a leash. Oh, yeah. And it's Buffy the dog. Oh, the dog. But yeah. that just appears there somehow <laughs> in between those two shots. And it's just one of those discontinuity things. But it made me laugh a little bit, quite honestly. Maybe Buffy <laughs> yeah. was fine until she wandered into the room and then Aww. poof. <laughs> so it has a distinctive look. It reminds me very much of uh, other films around this time, like Vamp, which mm. we, yeah, we saw and that. talked yeah. about with Heather Wixon, like with the neon, that fantasy mm. of a DJ booth. Yeah. All those primary coloured neon strips that are completely unmotivated. I don't know why they're there, but they look great. <laughs> I'm pretty sure the production designer had a friend at like the world of neon. <laughs> Literally, that's what yeah. he says. And, and so when he designed the radio station... He said, can I just like give you 500 bucks so that you just bring over every single piece of neon you have? And he literally <laughs> did. <laughs> I think it looks great. It doesn't look like a radio station at all, but it looks great. Yeah, yeah, it does. I started to believe at that age that that's
that's what all radio stations look like. And then when I saw one, I was like, oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Generally, you don't have the mixing desk in the middle of a huge echoey room. No. Generally. I mean, that makes total sense now, having worked in uh, podcasting for a while. But at the time as a kid, I was like, yeah, that's how cool everybody is at a radio station, especially mm. a rock radio station in L.A., you know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and speaking of music, another thing we often talk about is the score and the soundtrack. Mm -hmm. This is obviously the 80s. It's low budget. So the synthesizer rules. The composer, David Campbell, quite a popular guy, Canadian-American arranger, composer and conductor with 450 golden platinum records. Oh, wow. Working with Ariana Grande, Beyonce, Aerosmith, Garth Brooks and his own son, Beck. Oh, wow. Right. Yeah. I saw that. <laughs> oh, it's Beck's dad. <laughs> Wow. It's amazing, isn't it? The score itself is not particularly remarkable. It kind of reminds me when we were talking about Maniac Cop Dan, the things that you were saying are good about Jay Chatterway's score compared to the usual film that we watch from the 80s. Mm. I kind of thought, yeah, this must be ticking all of those boxes that Dan was talking about. Ticking all <laughs> the negatives or positives? Well, I thought the negatives because I thought maybe you might think this was more sort of situational, undeveloped, sort of random synth noodling. Yes. In this movie. Mm -hmm. 100%. Yeah. yeah. I, I felt like there was just no themes. It was just exciting music, sad music, tense music. Yeah. I felt nothing <laughs> <laughs> with the score. I just oozed 80s. And that's it. Mm. I just think it makes this movie translate perfectly into the modern times. Right. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, we don't have themes generally anymore for whatever reason. You guys would know a lot more about that than me. But I agree. This movie doesn't even have the John Carpenter sort of vibe where, no. you know, they live, as I mentioned it earlier, like they live kind of has a tone and a vibe, like in a mood. Mm. This is kind of, it almost harkens back to like the 50s horror sci-fi type movies where it's like right. almost yeah. like Star Trek, the very first original series television show, the first theme where it was like, you know, the lady singing with the music. It kind of mm. has that creepy sci-fi. Mm. Yeah. Right. Yeah, you're right. I think the opening title even has a sound that's very sort of theremin-y underneath the narration, which is very much a 50s. Yeah. Here's the scientist telling you what's happening. <laughs> and these people have no idea what's coming, all of that kind of thing. So it is hearkening back to 50s drive-in movies, I think. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that the whole film is very drive-in movie. It's yeah. very midnight cinema. Yeah. And the soundtrack has been released. I'm not sure how popular it is. <laughs> have you listened to it? I haven't. No, I have to say, <laughs> I don't know if these were popular artists in the US when this soundtrack came out, mm. but I don't recognize any of them. Oh, right. A hundred percent on that. Obviously, in the film, they do use a cover of Cyndi Lauper's Girls Just Want to Have Fun. And it's a honestly, it's a pretty good cover, mm. but... Yeah, I would definitely agree that this stuff almost feels 70s to me. Yeah. Uh, late 70s, sort of easy listening adult contemporary. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right, yeah. yeah, sort of light rock. Yeah. yeah. That's a cover. That's a Nilopa song. Yeah. I thought it yeah. was the actual <laughs> song. <laughs> no. It's a cover of a cover because Girls Just Want to Have Fun is also a cover. Is it? Oh. Yeah. I didn't know that. <laughs> a lot of people don't. I actually did a podcast on it just because I was like, 
wow, that's a cover. <laughs> <laughs> wow. But yeah, yeah, so this one is uh, voiced by Tammy Holbrook, who, uh, fun piece of trivia, was the original voice of Tommy Pickles in Rugrats. Oh, oh okay. wow. In the pilot episode, <laughs> oh. but did not make it into the full series. Oh. Bless her. So always the backup artist, never the bride. <laughs> Coming to you live from the Movie Oubliette Theatre, it's the prestigious Mobley Awards. It's the Mobley Awards. It's where we present our favourite red sky end of the world parts of the film in the number of sassy kick-ass categories. Best quote. So this is probably a really obvious one, but it actually made me laugh out loud, which was the scene where the girls are shooting the car with the Mac-10s, uh, and yeah. uh, they keep jamming, and Sam says, Daddy would have gotten us Uzis. <laughs> it's just, it just, I love the behind-the-scenes story about it, which is that the guns were actually jamming, and they just couldn't keep dealing with it, so the director just said, here, just say this if it jams again, and she did, and then I think Catherine Mary Stewart actually improvised the whole, well, the car didn't seem to mind or whatever. Um, oh, right. I think she yeah. just improvised that, but that, that line cracked mm, me up. Yeah. My favorite is uh, one of Kelly Maroney's lines. It's when she's arguing with her stepmother about the fact that she is cheating on their dad mm -hmm. with another guy called Chuck. <laughs> and she comes up with the classic line, you were born with an asshole, Doris. You don't need Chuck. <laughs> <laughs> Which is just great. I want to use it in daily life. I think yeah, yeah. You're right. Yes, that is an <laughs> outstanding line. <laughs> there are so many great one-liners in this movie, though. So mm. many. Uh, I actually wrote that down as well, but I've got to. I've got to back up. So <laughs> I loved the bit where um, Reg and Larry, her boyfriend, have just woken up the next day after a you know a night of hanky panky, <laughs> and uh, Larry is upset because the film hasn't been returned to him. So he decides to jump on his bike to go get the film. And Reggie says, oh, geez, don't I get an Egg McMuffin or anything? <laughs> and he says, do me a favor. And then Reggie immediately replies, I did you a favor last night. <laughs> <laughs> Best hair or costume. There are so many great costumes from Kelly and Catherine Mary Stewart to choose from. I'm going to pick on something that's a little bit less obvious, which is the scientists. Because although they are wearing the most boring grey boiler suits that you've ever seen with their slightly nice accessorising belts, they've also got these personal touches to them, like Mary Warrenov's character's got black leg warmers. Oh, right. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and one of the guys called Roberts has got a little bow tie on. Really? I didn't notice <laughs> On a that. boiler suit. Yeah, it's just little touches, but I'm sure you guys will pick some of the more iconic costumes in the movie. For me, I think I already said this, but Reggie's outfit the morning after the comet, mm. from her hair, which is, I can send you a picture of me from that time, and it's like, I was trying to have her hair. And that shirt, which is so reminiscent of Han Solo's shirt, honestly, with the, the fold-over oh, yeah. flap. And those scrunchy boots, which were absolutely the rage. And they're very interesting looking. And the cut of her jeans, every single thing about her costume that morning after, I'm like, I would wear that today. I don't know if I would look nearly as good as <laughs> Catherine Mary Stewart, but I would try. <laughs> How about you, Dan? 
Uh, I mean, I, I guess we have to mention the iconic cheerleader outfit from Kelly Maroney. It's just amazing and so mm. sort of of its time, but just so kind of timeless at the same time. And and she did mention that she kept it for a long time. Like only recently, she um she sold it to a, mm -hmm. a very uh, respectable a collector. Collector. Yeah, on the basis that he'd give it back to her if she ever wanted yes. it. Yeah, yeah. That's impressive. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I yeah. don't know what's more impressive, that or like whatever that football team would have looked like wearing teal and hot pink. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Most Aces moment. This is a very random one, but mm. in the scene where she's, uh, Sam is about to die, but she doesn't die, but in the mall where Mary Warnoff's character is uh, about to inject her, she says, oh, so you're, you guys are geniuses, right? She says, yeah. And she goes, we have a couple of geniuses at my school. They're total wimps. And that <laughs> that is such an 80s perspective of geniuses because mm. subsequently after the age of the internet, geniuses are like, you know, the richest people in the world. And cool. <laughs> and they were just yeah. most powerful people in the world. But in the 80s, boy, they were nerds and they were not cool at all. Oh, yeah. <laughs> now they're influencers. Right. Yeah. Mm. That's very true. And Dan? I've written down here um, everything in capital letters. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, as the, as the non-80s native, this must look very 80s to you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess the, the shopping mall scene, it's just like mm. every 80s film had a shopping mall montage scene with a hit song that... I thought was the actual song from Cindy Lauper, um, but yeah, that that montage very eighties, yeah. very very eighties. Favorite scene. My favorite scene is when Sam realizes that the boy that she had a crush on at school is dead, and she mm. she starts to cry. I mean, it, it's really gut wrenching, and I know the director talks about it and thinks it's stupid. <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm like, but that is why the movie works to me. Like, she's, it's so, and it's not even just because I was a teenager when I saw it, because I think in, she is a teenager. And even though I'm an adult very much, I empathize with how lonely and, and sad that must feel to have every single person you've ever known be dead. Like, that's mm. horrifying. <laughs> so I think she mm. does an amazing job of, she brushes it off pretty quickly, but I mean, she really gives it her all. It's probably the most emotionally impactful scene in the movie. Mm -hmm. mm. How was your favorite, Conrad? Uh, my favorite actually is the mall shootout because I think oh. that that's really exciting. And that was kind of what I wanted the whole movie to be, more of a sort of I am legend surviving in the city kind of mm -hmm. situation rather than the military base kind of stuff. And that's probably why I like Dawn of the Dead more than Day of the Dead. But um, <laughs> th there's just lots of great little moments in it. Like I really like um, the moment where Reggie pretends to be one of the uh, mannequins in the store uh, yes. uh, Excellent. to shoot at the guys. And because Catherine Mary Stewart is such a statuesque figure anyway, yes. it just easily works. So, I bought it. Yeah. Like, I didn't mm. see her. And I was like, oh, my God, that's no. her. <laughs> yeah, me, me uh, neither. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Such a good scene. Yeah. yeah. What about you, Dan, for favorite scene? I don't know whether it's my favorite scene, but it just really shows the sort of audacity of, of Sam as a character, is when the, the confrontation with her stepmom mm. 
and there's a bit of a uh, bit of few insults thrown, and then slap slap, <laughs> punch, punch in the face, just punch your stepdaughter. That's good parenting, good eighties mm-hmm. parenting right there. Yeah, most cliche sci-fi moment. I think this movie started off as being a sci-fi movie and then it sort of just tagged a little horror on there just like as a little bit of like (laughs) sprinkling a little salt and pepper on the top. So I picked favorite sci-fi cliche Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. I think it's just that opening voiceover where you've got science man explaining everything Uh, about, you know, I felt like I could see a guy sitting at a desk explaining it to me, you know? Yes. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. And it always starts with, you know, a shot of the galaxy, the stars. Yeah. 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 Although I I feel like I, I want to... I'm, I'm putting a mental check mark of what I think Dan's is going to be. I pretty much think I know, but we'll uh, see if I'm right. So. Okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, the double nightmare wake up scene. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, That's the horror, a good one. The horror cliche where Sam dreams that she's driving a car and drinking a beer, which is, <laughs> I guess, every teenager's fantasy uh, and then stopped by cops and they end up being zombies she wakes up oh it was all a dream and then she goes to the bathroom and then undresses for some strange reason and then is attacked again by a zombie cop she must have a thing about cops i'm not sure and then again uh, she wakes up nightmare it was all a dream yeah Dreams within dreams. I really thought you were going to say the thunder and lightning as the comet arrived. Oh, was, yeah. yeah. Of course. Which was really like, why? Like a comet isn't going <laughs> to cause that. So I don't understand. Yeah. But um, it was quite funny to me. I actually laughed out loud when it happened. Yeah. Best special effect. For me, and this is a really basic one as well, but I love the red filter. It is so simple mm. and it's so sets mm-hmm the tone especially for the first act of this movie it just keeps showing these beautiful empty cityscapes with that red filter that's graduated mm-hmm. and it looks like i feel like the sky would have a red hue if that happened and it's just mm. eerie and creepy looking and i love it yeah mm, yeah yeah it, it definitely set the tone and i love the fact that when they even went inside buildings you could still see like red light streaming in from from outside it was just a nice yeah. touch that that made it way like much more otherworldly and like it was the end of the world yeah. yeah and i like at the end of the movie that the rain comes down and washes it all away yeah, yeah. and then the blue yeah. skies come out and it's all over mm. yeah yeah yep. it's very good it's very clever and then it turns into a brady bunch movie it's... yeah for some reason <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's very bizarre favorite sound effect I struggled with this one, but um, I, I wrote this down because I do I did think it was kind of funny, especially like after watching the movie four times. Uh, <laughs> when that monkey wrench hits that guy's skull, the crunch sound that it makes is pretty good. Like it's 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 very satisfying. Mm, yeah, I, I think it sells. It's kind of shock that. Scene. Yeah, I think so too. It, it really sells that scene. I didn't expect it. I thought for sure, ah, oh, the boyfriend's gonna be you know the hero of of the movie, but no, just immediately killed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How about you, Conrad? Uh, for me, I thought the uh, the scene where Reggie is being interrogated by Jeffrey Lewis for some reason there is a dot matrix printer sound in the back. Background, you know, where the old oh, head goes backwards <laughs> yeah. and forwards, it's dzz, 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 and there's no printer in the room, so I have no <laughs> idea where this sound is coming oh from. Oh my god, other than... <laughs> I missed that. That's hilarious. Yeah. 
so uh, quintessential 80s, that dot matrix printer. I, I'd say, yeah, I really enjoyed hearing it. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Insert machinery sound here. <laughs> Most funniest moment. At the end, when Hector is putting his guns and ammo in the trash can, and the little girl says, can I have one of those? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> kind of cracked me up. Yeah, it is good. <laughs> all, all the funniest moments for me were already mentioned. Just all the great one-liners, that Buffy scene with the dog. <laughs> just every every piece of dialogue from Kelly Maroney and Catherine Mary Stewart, just gold. Yeah. yeah. I have another little moment that I quite like, which is after the evil nurses have attempted to <laughs> fool the children, oh, yeah. that they'll be going to see Santa after they've gassed them. That when the scientists discover them after Catherine and <laughs> Kelly have broken the kids out, they find those nurses strapped to the laughing oh, gas, yes. yeah. giggling their asses <laughs> off with a little sign stuck over the top of them saying, going to see Santa. <laughs> I love that they took the time to write that yeah. out and stick it on there. Yeah. Like, that's hilarious. Yeah. yeah. And that's our move, please. And there it is. Yeah. <laughs> This is Kelly Maroney, and you are listening to Movie Oubliette. It's final verdict time. Should Night of the Comet survive the apocalypse and ride off into the sunset in a convertible to be loved by all? Or should it be disintegrated into a pile of red dust and swept into the Oubliette, never to be watched again? <laughs> Melinda, you have presented us with Night of the Comet. What are your final thoughts on the film? I think this movie should definitely get to ride off into the sunset. I think it's a wonderful uh, depiction of the 80s, but not the stereotypical 80s that we think of. It's it's two very strong female characters who are not too heavy-handed with that. They're just really mm. likable, and you care about them. And like you said... You'd love to see the further adventures of Reggie and Sam and Hector. Mm. Um, all, all three of those characters mm. are just so interesting. And even though the movie stumbles a bit in terms of the third act and possibly just the overall plot in general, I still think that the characters are so strong that you almost don't care because they get you with the characters. And, and it's the mm. heart of the film. Mm. So I have to say, when I first watched this, <laughs> didn't quite enjoy it as much as I maybe should have. But I don't know. I think it gets you the second watch mm. and on repeat watching because of those characters. They really draw you into the film and draw you into the predicament of the apocalypse. And you kind of don't care about the lack of plot. You don't care about the the terrible scientists and how ridiculous they look. Um <laughs> And you just care about the two characters. And I think that's uh, what really sells this film. And I think also if anyone was an 80s kid, this is the film for you. <laughs> this is the 80s film that you should watch. It's, it just oozes nostalgia. Mm. And mm -hmm. yeah. For sure. <laughs> if you like the 80s, yeah, watch this film. Yeah. Well, I have to agree. I mean, the first time I saw it, I remember it being, you know, a little disappointed they didn't have more action and more zombies because that was the age I was. But there was something about it that stuck with me. And certainly the look of it always stuck with me. And I think that it is on second viewing that you really begin to appreciate it, especially when you're mm. older, that it is the characters, it's the dialogue, 
It's the sensibility of the film. It does let itself down right at the very end and there are pacing problems and the third act is not my favourite, but it's just such a great, unique, fun piece of filmmaking with a lot of verve and with two great female characters and a great Latino character as well. And to mm. see that in 1984 is really great. So if you haven't seen it, if you haven't discovered Night of the Comet, I thoroughly recommend that you do yeah and also uh, watching it before covid and after <laughs> covid oof, it's a very different experience it, it is definitely yeah. resonates now yeah i wasn't yeah. even expecting that uh <laughs> specifically but you're right it really does sort of give you the chills in a different way now for sure mm. Mm. it does mm. yeah there you go night of the comet it's unanimous it is yes off you go. You can ride off into the sunset with DMK. <laughs> so, Melinda, it's been wonderful having you on the show, uh, especially all of your research and your insight, as always. Where can people find more of it? Uh, well, you can find me on retroblasting.com slash dreamland, where I post all of my show notes and all of our episodes, and Dreamland, the Retroblasting podcast, on all of your favorite podcasting apps. So that's where we live. Yes. I highly recommend the podcast because you cover 80s culture, pop culture in every aspect. And it's uh, not just the toy collecting, which is you cover on the, the YouTube channel a lot, but also delving into films like Xanadu was an episode <laughs> that I really enjoyed. <laughs> Me too, surprisingly. That's <laughs> a curious film, Yes. Isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah. Probably it needs to be yeah. in the oubliette a little bit. But. Oh, it's down there, I'm sure. <laughs> it's down there, yeah. So, yeah, just films and TV series and just cult pop culture items like the Garbage Pail Kids and the Cabbage Patch Kids. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> and uh, the Roswell uh, Alien Autopsy movie as well. That's a fascinating piece of history when you delve into it. So I think our favorite episode that we've ever done is the KLF. Mm. I think that was where we really sort of realized the depth to which we were happy to go into for research. So, yeah, we like to do the heavy lifting of massive going down every weird tangential rabbit hole to do with a subject so that you don't have to. And then you just sort of mm -hmm. sit back and take it all in like, wow, this is really weird. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Aaron does a few wisecracks. <laughs> Love Aaron's wisecracks. <laughs> yes, that is his specialty. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Check them out. It's it's really good stuff. And also, obviously, the mm -hmm. Retro Blasting YouTube channel and the live streams. It's all good stuff. Thank you mm. very much. Yes, it is. And if you want to look forward to our good stuff, <laughs> our future episodes, you can follow us on all social media platforms uh, as Movie Oubliette. Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can also email us at movie.oubliette at gmail.com. We always love hearing from you on any topic, even cheese souffles. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and if you want to give us some money, you can become a patron on Patreon for as little as a dollar a month. You get access to extended segments, and for $5, you get access to our monthly mini-sode. Yes. Our latest one was on Love and Monsters. Yes. Yeah, new movies. Yeah, new stuff. It's fun. Yes. <laughs> what fun movie are we going to do next episode, Conrad? Yes, we're leaping forward in terms of time period to 2012, quite recent, where we'll be looking at the Irish-British-American co-production horror-thriller-dramery film...
Byzantium. Mm, okay, I've been recommended this film a number of times, but I've never watched it. No, I have to say I wasn't even familiar with it at all. But it does look very promising in terms of director and cast. It's directed by Neil Jordan, who is famous in the eighties for things like Company of Wolves and The Crying Game in the nineties. Oh wow. Okay. So, yeah, that's. I have no idea what it is or what to expect at all. So, looking forward to that. <laughs> Me too. Can't wait. Yeah. But in the meantime, we've had an amazing time with you, Melinda. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode. Great talking to you. Yes, please check out her podcast, Dreamland and Retroblasting on YouTube. It's highly entertaining. Yes, it is. And that's all from us today. Bye for now. Bye, guys. Goodbye. <laughs> Tend to forget. Come with us and open up the movie you'll be at. I'm not crazy. I just don't give a fuck. <laughs>